How do we always have this much to talk about, even when we have nothing to talk about? We're blabbermouths, that's why. Yeah, no. That's why you should get more out of your system on your new podcast, then you won't have as much to say here. Oh, because I'm definitely the one bogarting the mic of the three of us. John, any follow-up? Why is follow-up always my job? Because you invented follow-up. <laughs> is that really that big of a surprise? I mean, uh, really. I, I put all this follow-up. You guys can put follow-up in, too, you know. Yeah, but we don't believe in following up on things. Because we're, well, we're just always right. <laughs> it's nothing to do with being right. It has to do with adding additional information. People ask on the, like on the earning calls, can I get some more color on that? We provide more color. <laughs> All right. First item is the, that uh, new reversible USB connector that we talked about many, many, many shows ago. Uh, they have reportedly finalized the spec and released a bunch of images uh, of what the connector is supposed to look like. If you look in the show notes, you can see it. We had like mock-ups before. We already knew. Uh, that it wasn't going to be like lightning. It wasn't going to be a solid metal thing with contacts on the top and bottom, but rather it was going to be more like an existing USB connectors where it's a, some kind of shape metal shell. And then inside the little metal shell is what, what's inside there. There's a better picture of the innards. Is it like a little hole? And then in the thing you plug it into, there's a little uh, board with uh, contacts on top and bottom. And anyway, it's difficult to explain. We'll put pictures in the show notes. So you can see what it looks like. It's not very exciting to look at, I guess. I mean, it's got uh, it's basically like a, a rectangle with round end caps on the right and left side. Um, I guess there's not much more to say about it, except there's one comment uh, on the Ars Technica story, uh, which we'll link from Peter Bright, who is known for being wrong about everything all the time. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's kind of his. his uh, reputation way, way to put it gently yeah, how do you really feel but in a in a pleasant way he's he's well, he's well informed that he knows lots of things but when the, whenever there's a choice to make one decision or another based on subjective criteria he chooses wrong is this like the john syracuse equivalent of bless his heart yeah um anyway he wrote in the comments uh the big question is where are the sprung parts usb traditionally did this right putting them in the cable which is cheap and easy to replace apple did it wrong putting them in the port which is expensive and difficult to replace and what he's talking about is when you have a connector where two contacts press up against each other one of them has to, one or both of them have to have some give to them otherwise it would have to, if they were both completely rigid you'd have to have it perfectly aligned and you have to have these little you know metal things touching each other exactly one of them you want to be kind of like a spring so if there's a little bit of wiggling you know then they move back and forth. The spring will account for that motion by staying in contact with the thing. Uh, and traditionally, there's like one rigid part and one springy part, although I suppose you could do two springy parts. It would work the same. In lightning connector, the little thing that you plug in is stiff. You can look at it. It's a little metal, solid metal thing with contacts on top and bottom. Uh, but inside the connector are these little kind of springy finger things that uh, are... With no connectors in it, they are closer together than the connector than the width of the connector. When you shove the connector in, it presses those springy things apart so that when it's in inserted in there, the connectors are pressing against the contact area. So if the lightning connector wiggles a little bit, the things stay in contact with each other. Uh, and Peter is saying that in USB, the little springy things are inside the connectors. So if they get unspringy or they start to get looser or whatever, fine, you throw it out the cable, you get a new one. And in Lightning, the little springy things are inside the connector itself, so the cable doesn't matter. Uh, if those little springy things get loose, you need to replace the thing that the cable connects into. Which makes some sense, but the, the question always is, what is the expected lifetime of the little springy things? If the expected lifetime of the little springy things exceeds the expected lifetime of the device, uh, then you're fine. 
Uh, if it doesn't, then you have problems. Presumably, Apple took this into account. I like the idea, as I talked about on the past shows, that the Lightning connector is, you know, is very physically robust. It is a solid little ingot of metal. Uh, it does have very fine connect uh, contacts on it, which I guess is just the price of being small and having, you know, I mean, you need like, what is it? You need at least four connectors there. I forget how many are on Lightning. I guess I can stare at this thing and look. What is it, eight? I think it's eight on each side, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's a lot of connectors in a small place, but the connector itself is like there's nothing to snag on anything. You can bang it around and it will probably be okay. Uh, it it seems more robust to me than a similarly sized connector. The USB 3, uh, you know, USB Type-C connector is bigger than Lightning, but not that much. I think we went over the exact size in millimeters on the, the previous episode, but it's hollow. So it's got this really skinny shell and inside that little shell is a little gap where this thing plugs into it. And I'm not sure how durable that will be compared to this. Now, he's right that it's like, well, if you have to replace something, wouldn't you rather replace the cheap cable than replace the other thing? So if you have if you had something fragile into your cable, like if your connectors were fragile and you accidentally, you know, stepped on them or they got dropped and bent or whatever, well, so what? You buy a new cable. Uh, so it's not so bad for the connectors to be fragile. But the springy parts is a good point that I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out in practice. I don't think lightning has been in the market long enough for anyone to have a lightning connector device where the little springy things become unspringy or get permanently bent up or lose their spring. Well, what's interesting is that this actually might be a good design on Apple's part because it certainly seems from the sound of uh, people complaining when lightning came out that the cables might outlast people's use of the devices. Well, they still have the little, you know, the little strain relief sleeves on the edge. Sure, yeah. Like, so those things, those things always wear out. But I'm saying, like, I bet, I bet, I bet the average person who has more than one iPhone in their life, they probably keep cables around. Because I mean, like, I know I do. Like, it, it was really annoying to me when I when I bought Lightning cables when when the iPhone five came out because I had accumulated so many dock cables over the years that I, I wanted yep. to like you know at least partially match my collection so I could have all the convenience of having these things everywhere. Um, I bet. That, ha- that had to have crossed somebody's mind at some point in a- at Apple when designing this connector that actually, you know, most people replace their iPhone every one to two years, whereas these cables might hang around for five years or more. Well, the the thing about the the cables, I do also have a lot of old cables hanging around, but I would imagine the part that fails on the cables, like I said, is not the connector part on Lightning or even on the dock connector, which is this crazy wide thing with very weird you know, tiny contacts in there. Yeah, I'm still amazed the dot connector ever worked. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. It's, I mean, I'm still using it. My iPad still uses it, but, but instead it's the, it's the, the wire itself, especially the strain release parts for people who are not delicate with their devices and just yank it out. Eventually the part where the wire goes into the connector starts to fray. And once that goes, it doesn't matter that your connector is still fine. And the whole wire is dead. Uh, you could be right though, especially for phones on like a two year replacement cycle with contracts in the U S that the, the cable might outlive the thing. The thing about, I mean, like I said, Lightning hasn't been around for a while, for long enough for us to know if the little springy things are a problem. We do know that in all connectors, dock port, Lightning, anything, with any portable device that you carry around in pockets and stuff, lint is an issue. Like if there's a hole in a device and you're carrying it around in your pocket or in your purse, lint will get in there. And I've, I've known many people who have had either had to go to the Apple store or sort of done surgery on their own with like, I don't know, toothpicks and dental tools or something. <laughs> to remove big wads of lint from because like if you eventually if you pack in enough lint in your thing and you try to put the lightning connector in it won't go all the way in it'll basically be prevented from from seating and, and you know there's two little dents on the side of the lightning connector that these other these other two little springy things grab onto uh and then you know it's properly seated that's why you get that little click 
if you get enough crap inside there, you can't even get it seated. I mean, that's there's not much I think the connector can do about that, uh, except maybe not having it open at all and being more like MagSafe, but that has its own set of problems. But anyway, I'm glad USB is getting reversible. I think the connector looks okay. I would have preferred if it, it looked and worked like lightning, but uh, there is an open question about durability for both of them because neither one has existed long enough, long enough for us to know. I'm just proud of them for finally making possibly, maybe, just maybe, a micro USB connector that isn't totally infuriating to insert and remove. Let's not go too far. It's still early. <laughs> it will yeah. join the eight bazillion other kinds of USB connectors that are out there. In in this thread on Ars Technica in the comment thread about this connector, about a million people posted the XKCD comic about, you know, uh, competing standards and how there's you know too many standards i know i'll make one standard that everyone can use and now you've just created one more standard that's the history of usb like they just kept creating connector after connector there are so many of them in so many different shapes and sizes plus the weird proprietary ones that occasionally people would come out with that only appear on one or two devices uh hopefully this new reversible one will sweep away all the old ones uh at the very least, I hope it replaces everything on PC, laptops, and desktops. I don't really care so much about, like, cameras and stuff like that because I think they're always just going to do their own thing. But uh, anyway, uh, I, I welcome my new USB connector overlords. That's The Simpsons, isn't it? It is. Good job. All right. We are uh, sponsored tonight first by a return sponsor. It's Automatic. Automatic is your smart driving assistant on your smartphone. Go to automatic.com slash ATP. So automatic is this little thing you plug into your ODB. Oh, man. Is it? Okay. Which one's the wrapper? Which one's the port? Every time I'm going to ask this question. Onboard o- diagnostics. OBD. Okay. O- you're, you plug it into your OBD2 port, uh, which is available on pretty much almost every car made since I think 96 was when they started standardizing this. I, it, you can look at their site to see. Um so uh, check, the, check, their, check their site to make sure, but chances are very, very good that your car is supported. Um, automatic is a little thing you plug into this port, and it uses Bluetooth, and it talks to you with smartphone app. It monitors how you drive, so that way you can monitor your fuel economy. Uh, it can read check engine type error code, so like rather than just having one check engine line on the dashboard, it'll tell you, like, your oxygen sensor is broken. You should probably get that looked at. You know, you can tell you more specifics. Um, it could also, if you're in a crash and the port detects that, which most of them do, um, it can signal for help if you're in a major crash. Um, and there's like a little thing on the app you can tell it not to when that happens, if you want to, within like 30 seconds, something like that. But chances are you probably want it to if you're in a serious crash. And the best part about this, though, and you should look at the app. It's pretty cool. The best part about it automatic, it intelligently monitors how you drive. And so it, t- it tells you how to optimize your fuel economy and other factors you want to optimize for. So it gives you all the data you need to track your fuel costs. It even checks like costs around you um, and your fuel efficiency every week. And it can give you tips on small changes you can make to save a lot of money in the long run. It can even make subtle audio cues. Uh, when you drive inefficiently, if you like, you know, slam on the accelerator too often or slam on the brakes too hard, um, it'll kind of remind you subtly uh, to help guide you towards better habits to reach the goals that you've set. Uh, I actually found like, so my car, uh, sorry if this is ridiculous, my car has one of those um, lane change warning things where little cameras look at the road and detect where the lines are if you when you're going above a certain speed. And if you start drifting towards the lines on either side and you're not signaling, the steering wheel vibrates slightly. And when I first got the car, I was hitting that all the time. And I realized it was mostly because of my own bad habits. Like I would 
start drifting a little bit to the left on the highway before I would turn the turn signal on to change lanes. And having that subtle feedback actually fixed me. Like within a few weeks uh, of having this car, I I improved my habits. I improved my technique um, be, just subtly with that slight reminder. And so automatic can do that for you with these audio cues if you you know to reach the goals you have for fuel economy or whatever else it can do that pretty cool stuff it can help you save hundreds of dollars on gas um and really get you help in a serious crash diagnose engine lights all this fun stuff there's even a parking locator that ties in with the app so it can it can tell you where you parked your car uh they have apps for iphone and android um you can order one for just a hundred bucks uh, there's no subscription fees. It's hundred bucks up front one time and that's it. You own it. The service comes with that price. There is no monthly subscription for all this cool stuff. Free shipping ships in two business days and they have a 45 day return policy. So it's kind of, you know, no pressure. Just try it. See if you like it. Now, best thing is for you guys, because you're special and we're special and you know, everyone who listens to the podcast is by definition special. Um, you don't have, you don't have to pay a hundred bucks for this, even though that's a great value. We have a special price, 20% off, so it's just 80 bucks. Go to automatic.com slash ATP. This is spelled the normal way, not the WordPress way. Automatic.com slash ATP to get that special deal, to get this thing for just 80 bucks. Thanks a lot to Automatic for sponsoring our show. Pretty cool product. You know someone's serious when they give you a 20% discount. Like yeah, that's, 10, that's big. 10% is, you know, hey, that's pretty cool. I appreciate that. But 20%, that's some serious stuff. What else is in follow-up, <clears throat> John? <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, mate. You want to do this next one? I just pasted it in there, but I have no <laughs> particular tie to it more than anyone else does. Well, I don't know which parts in particular you wanted to talk about, um, but this is from Gavin regarding ARM Max. And again, I, there, there's like 300 words here. I don't know which particular words you felt were important. Uh, you're failing as a uh, summary <laughs> service. <laughs> Casey, you know the thing. You know the thing. Is it still an OS ten where you can select a bunch of text and ask it to summarize it for you? Back in the day, isn't that, was that a, what a what that kid thing. had created that did the like news article? Sumly. Yeah. All right. Anyway, this uh, this is from Gavin, and he asked a question about uh, ARM Max. His idea is, uh, what about uh, instead of an ARM Mac, what about a traditional Mac form factor device? but with an ARM CPU running iOS and not OS 10. I think that's essentially what he's asking about here. What would that accomplish that like one of those silly Logitech keyboard covers doesn't other than the fact that it would be less silly? Well, I think the idea is that like iOS is the newer OS. iOS has less annoying stuff in it. It's easier for people to use. Why should uh, laptops be stuck with the more complicated OS? Why can't we make a laptop form factor but have it run iOS? And I think the obvious answer to that is that uh you know what do you do do you touch the screen or not because that that's the question first question you have to ask all right so it's running ios ios doesn't work with a mouse pointer it's a touching thing uh so am i going to be touching the screen of my laptop no you'll use the same mouse and uh keyboard combinations that the ios simulator uses because those are super fun <laughs> and there's still no shortcut to adjust dynamic text size Drives me nuts. See, like the exact text is, what about a laptop WIMP version of iOS? Uh, you know, so he's saying it's going to have Windows. What is WIMP? Windows uh, something? Intel. No, I don't My know. MySQL PHP? Yeah. <laughs> Mouse pointer, whatever. I think he's saying it's going to have, uh, he compared it to a Chromebook, basically. So the idea is instead of, you know, have, having iOS go down market, something like that. And the other, the other part of his email was, uh, what if you had something that was like an Intel computer in the house? 
which he calls the truck. But uh, each per- each individual person has their own like iOS device that either docks with or connects with that. And you only replace the big Intel computer every few years, but you replace the iOS things uh, more frequently. And when I read this part, I thought it seems like, well, I don't know what the replacement cycle is, but it seems like the replacement cycle for for iPads in particular is not particularly frequent. Like they are hanging around way longer. I don't know if they're hanging around longer than Macs are, but they're certainly hanging around for a long time because they're not tied to a contract. There's nothing artificial making you upgrade it. So I know so, so many people who still have iPad ones being used in the house. Granted, usually by kids, but like you cannot kill these things. Like if you don't physically break it and it still runs the same five apps than it was running before, I guess at a certain point, maybe like if you can't view YouTube on it anymore or if the browser becomes so old that you can't use most websites, that will kill it. But well, we have an answer to this question, kind of. Uh, Friend of the show, underscore David Smith, just updated his version stats page to include uh, the average device age which for an ipad is 883 days and by comparison an iphone is 804 days so a difference of what is that 80 days something like 30 yeah about 80 days yeah i saw i saw those stats and i was surprised that they were so similar you you would think the the upgrade cycle on phones would make them uh last longer but anyway i mean the thing the problem with uh underscore all of underscore stats is I don't know if he has a, a broad enough cross section of the user base. I think a lot of the people who use his apps or know about them might be in the nerd circle, and then that could be skewing things a bit. But well, this is all from audiobooks alone, I thought, which is a little bit more mainstream. Yeah, I suppose. And and you know, now that I think about it, like in the same way that iPads get handed down, I do know a lot of cousins, for example, who have old versions of their parents' phones. So I don't know. Um, and also not everyone is on a two year cycle. You know, that, that from what I gather is maybe not a uniquely American thing, but a particularly American thing. Yeah. So I'm not sure about Gavin's theory here. I think we'd have to work out a lot of issues in terms of the, the input, uh, for the, uh, you know, iOS powered Chromebook type thing. I, I like the idea of trying to get rid of the legacy concerns of the back, but uh, we don't have, we're not anywhere close to having a replacement for all the functionality that a Mac provides. And I don't think you can just make everyone go iOS and solve all these problems. Yeah. I don't think any sort of dock like thing would make much sense. I understand what he's driving out with a Chromebook and I don't know the Chromebook to me on paper. I don't understand why it's appealing, but I know uh, Ben Thompson of strict, Stratechery, because it used to be Stratechery, now it's Stratechery. Uh, I know he swears by his, and I've heard from others, so I can't remember who, that they love theirs. But having never used one, I don't get it. But then again, I said the same thing about an iPad, and I love my iPad. So, I don't know. You said on paper you don't get it. On paper is exactly where I get it. Like, conceptually, conceptually and in theory, all the things that they're doing I think are great. It's just in practice, the actual devices I have not found appealing although maybe i just need to use them but the whole, the whole idea is like throw it in a river who cares all your stuff is somewhere else you just sign in everything syncs nothing is local everything local is just a cache everything's in the cloud all your applications are web applications or similar like that concept you know don't worry about backups don't worry about local device management don't worry about anything it's just like you know it's not a dumb terminal. It's a smart terminal. You know, like it's got, you have, <laughs> you have local disk, local cache, memory, GPU, all that good stuff that you want. Uh, what you don't have is local state, but you, what you've eliminated are all the stupid concerns that make us have difficult tech support calls with relatives about how to deal with computing. And it would be just, you know, take away all those concerns. But in practice, 
what are the applications? How do you use it? How is the experience? How is the hardware? What is the pricing and performance like? And those things aren't quite yet worked out. So, Oh, sure. It'll all be iCloud. It'll be perfect. Well, Google does a better job than Apple with iCloud iCloud but uh yeah we're not there yet but like if anyone's going to get there first it's going to be Google so uh I, I keep my eye on the Chromebook space to see how it's going but so far it's not has not impressed me yeah all right so we also have some follow up um this was sent specifically to us is that right from Jared Sinclair yes don't you don't you read your email yeah i just i wanted to make sure um that makes one of us <laughs> <laughs> so he says in an email to the three of us, in my post, I was very careful not to assign blame to anyone else for Unread's failure, not even to Apple. The main purpose of my article was not to assign blame, but simply to make my failure a matter of public record. Here's why. In response to Brent Simmons' recent post about who are the indie iOS developers, numerous people on Twitter responded mentioning my name. With the high-profile reviews of Unread and uh, several App Store features, I could see why an outside observer might assume that Unread was earning me a sustainable living. I don't want someone to take my silence as a tacit approval of that notion. More importantly, I don't want someone to consider, scare quotes going indie, to make that career change without hearing about how easy it is to fall to fail Excuse me, in the App Store. Uh, the scale of the App Store with over 100 million credit cards can make it seem like any given niche is big enough for a solo developer to earn a small but sustainable living. The idea out there is that great design and great reviews will be enough to carry you. Reality often contradicts, contradicts that wishful thinking as I learn the hard way. Maybe someone out there can learn from my mistakes and not repeat them. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting and well phrased. And similar and kind of relatedly, uh, sometime in the last week or so, Jared actually took a full-time position with someone, I say, as I stall, um, but it doesn't really matter, with someone. Yeah, he, he talked about it, actually, on, uh, there's a good podcast called Release Notes that you should all listen to if, if you're a developer, especially. If you listen to this show, that will be relevant to you. Um, it's a very good show, and, and they had him on last week, and then this week to talk more about it. And um, yeah, it's it's good. I mean... We, I mean, hell, we, we could talk about this for episodes and episodes. Uh, we probably shouldn't. We probably will. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and really quickly, a real-time follow-up, it's Blog Lovin' that he is joining. Cool. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. There's so many angles to, to this whole thing. First of all, I don't think it's worth anybody trying to figure out what indie should mean. Uh, the definition of the word indie doesn't really matter. Uh, for the purposes of this argument, I, I don't think that's really a discussion that needs to happen. Um, I don't think we need to care about how many people are there making their living solely on this. And, and you know, again, like, you know, what does that mean? And I think you can just look around to see, you know, this, that it's hard. It, there's a lot of people out there doing iOS app development with the hopes of making money from it. And very few of them make a, a meaningful amount of money from it. That, to some degree, has always been the case. Like, our friend underscore David Smith um, did an episode of Developing Perspective, which you should also be listening to, uh, during the very first week this was being discussed, a few weeks back, and where he basically said, uh, it's always been hard. And he's right. I mean, I've I've been in the App Store since day one, and, and I was I was lucky that Instapaper on, well, I was actually, like, day two or three, technically, because <laughs> uh, there was a huge backlog of submissions and even though i submitted by the deadline that where they said you'd be there on day one i wasn't (laughs) (laughs) no i'm not i'm not bitter about that i've been there since roughly day two or three and yeah the fact is it's always been hard i was lucky that my app was very popular from the start relatively speaking but 
even that was not that easy to to sustain. And I I've had you know other efforts since then that were not that successful, and I and I saw the other side of it too. I, I at some point I want to do a big blog post about app marketing and what that actually means, um, which is funny coming from me. And I would probably it would probably include me talking about brands uh, because it's actually relevant. You have to think about marketing from the start. Like when I when I made Overcast, when I, when I decided to start making it, the very first thing I did after deciding, okay, I'm going to take this little prototype audio engine I have and make it into an actual app. The very first thing I did was download all the other podcast apps that I could find and make a folder on my phone so I could keep tabs on them and, and see what they added and see what they did and see what they were good at and see what they weren't good at. And I, I took screenshots of all of them. I did like a little tour of each app and took a screenshot to say, you know, here's here's how this app looks. And I made folders saying, you know, this is Downcast, this is Instacast, this is Pocketcast, like all the all the apps. Here's how they look. Here's their setting screen. Here's their playback screen. Here's their list screen. Here's the options, you know, that they have and whatever. I, I did all this so that I could have like this portfolio of in of info. And then I made a list saying, here's what I plan to do with my app. How will it be better than or worse than these apps? And what, you know, in what regards will I be better than this? And then, well, you know, and for each app, I had an entry in a big text file saying, here's the pros of Overcast versus this app. And here's the cons of Overcast versus this app. And I did all this not because I'm, good at doing research or homework because that's not even close to being true (laughs) i did all this because i wanted to make sure that i had a chance and and not a chance of being you know being like a a minor success for a week or two i wanted this app to be to be successful enough that i could develop it for years because that's what i want to do i want to keep working on this i don't like now it's out i've actually i there was an update which i'll get to i guess later um i've i've already fixed many of the known bugs if I, if I wanted to just abandon this app and move on, I could probably abandon it in about another two months. But I don't want to do that. I want to keep working on it. So far, I will be able to. It, you know, it's selling well enough that so far I can do that. But I did all this research up front and all this planning to, to really know, like, what, what am I really going to be adding to this market? And, you know, Jared points out, there's this idea that, you know, he says, there's the idea that great design and great reviews will be enough to carry you. And that's not, and and he he points out rightly that's that's wishful thinking. That's you know that doesn't fit reality, because the fact is you can have the best launch in the world and be all over Daring Fireball and Mac Stories and iMore and all the great sites that review this stuff, but what you have to look at is an app store buyer who is just browsing the app store who has searched for the kind of app that you have. They typed in podcast into the app store. They get a list of the podcast apps, and they're going to look at the first few and make a decision. You have to ask yourself, before you even start any work at all, you have to ask yourself, will the, will people meaningfully, in meaningful numbers, will people buy my app in that situation? They're not going to go to Mac Stories. They're not going to go to Daring Fireball. They're going to go to the App Store and look down the list, and they're going to make, they're going to make a few comparisons. Probably first, they're going to look at price. And they're going to look at, they're probably first going to look to see if there's a free one that fits their needs. And if they, if there is, great, they're going to stop there and that's it. And then they judge it based on the icon, the title, the screenshots, if you're lucky, and no one ever, ever, ever reads the description text. I read, I read some of it. You're the only person who reads it. Yeah, I read it too, but you know. Well, I also read emails, so. There's like three words visible in the description text most yeah. of the time. It's like <laughs> two or three words, a period, a new line, new line, one word. 
new line dot 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 tap for more exactly and no one ever and apple apple there is designing for what people actually do like it used to be more text visible and over time they've shrunk it because presumably because nobody reads it and they can use that space for other things so you know people have to you have to plan from the start this is this is marketing this is part of marketing is figuring out where you fit in the market and making sure you're going to fit somewhere that there actually is a market for it's marketing from the very beginning it's thinking about this stuff from the very beginning you have to be able to think you know you have to be able to make a good case for your app based on no reviews having been read no research having been done usually not even people trying trials of different apps they're usually going to stick with whatever they use first so in that list when they do the app the app store search they're browsing a list is your app going to be compelling enough and the fact is because there's so many apps in the store it's hard to be compelling and especially the model of paid up front this it's the reason it's so hard is because that's how people browse the reason the race to the bottom happened is because of that that's because most people are buying apps not from their desktop reading reviews and clicking a link to go to itunes and have the app sync over most people are buying apps right from the phone in the app store app period and they're doing it probably after doing a search we don't know that for sure yet but i i bet I bet once we have better analytics, we'll find that out pretty quickly. That's probably through through browsing top lists first and searching for terms a distant second. And you know, most people aren't going to be on the top list, so you know, your your hope is searching for terms. When they browse the list and they see that one of the apps is free, or that like three or four of them are free, and there's your app sitting there at four bucks, you don't stand a chance. You just don't. If people if people hear about your app in some other way. And they, you know, if a friend tells them if they read a review and your app is four bucks, that's fine. They'll, you, have a, you have a decent chance there. But the average person browsing, and this, I, I, I know there are specialty app types that for which this is not true. That's fine. But for general audience apps, general purpose apps that are not being used in some kind of specialty business role or anything like that, general audience apps, this is how people browse. They look for what they want. They find one, hopefully that's free. They download it and they stop looking. That's it. And so paid up front apps just, as I said, they don't really stand a chance in this model. This is why Overcast is not paid up front. Instapaper was paid up front the whole time. I saw the challenges. It worked for a long time. Then it stopped working very well. And, and it's hard for developers to accept this because paid up front is easy. It's really easy to just make an app where everything's always enabled and you don't have to worry about trying to manage purchases or anything like that. You just make a, a great app and you put a price tag on it and you're done. And you don't have to deal with refunds or anything like that because Apple deals with it for you. And you don't have to deal with limiting things and trials and demos and working with Apple's limitations and rules for that and all that stuff. You just put it up there and you're done. It's a great story. It worked for a long time. It stopped working. It doesn't work now. Now you got to put a little more work into it. You know, now you have to actually figure out, well, what can I, how can I wedge a free trial type thing into this system what can I get paid for in this app, if anything? And then you have to implement that. You have to say, all right, well, you have to like, like in Overcast, I made these like little demo modes where you can demo the effects for five minutes and, you know, before you buy them. That's all additional work. I had to have an interface for buying things. I had to have a screen explaining that what you get when you buy things. You have to have all these different states that exist in the app. You have to, with iOS 8, you have to deal with delayed purchases, all this stuff. This is just the reality of the market now. You have to think this way. You have to do more work. You probably, if you want a general audience app, you probably have to do free with an app purchase to make any money, and and that's just the reality of it. You know what what Jared was doing with Unread 
um, was appealing to us, appealing to people like you and me. But that's not the market. That's a very small part of the market. And and he got that part of the market, but it just wasn't enough. Do you think he would have had maybe the bravery is the best way to phrase it to release Overcast had you not already proven your success in the App Store with Instapaper? And I'm not saying like to other people. Do you think internally you would have had the bravery, again, for lack of a better word, to, to jump into the App Store in today's App Store had you not already lived through 2008's App Store? I probably would have been stupid enough to do it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, and I'm, I don't want to discourage people from doing it. Just have reasonable expectations, you know. And and the fact is, like, in 2008, you could put anything up there. I mean, God forbid, if you actually see screenshots of Instapaper 1.0, it's a disaster. And I actually didn't have I didn't have a paid app on day one. My first app was free, and then I made Instapaper Pro about two months in. Um, that was the paid app. So about two months in, I started getting paid revenue, and and. Even even that version. I mean, you look at the screenshots; it's it's just a disaster. It's it's awful looking, and I charged ten dollars for it, and it sold well. <laughs> it's crazy, and the the fact is, standards were just much lower back then. There was a lot less in the store. These days, every category already has ten apps in it at least. You got, especially, I mean, God, some some categories have thousands. You you're competing against a massive massive market now. It's it's not the same game anymore, and and you have to adapt to the new reality of it. And you can't really depend, you know. And Jared's right, you know, to not to not really ascribe blame to Apple in this, um, because you know I, I wrote this post a couple of weeks ago called App Rot, and and this post was a failure of of mine as a writer. Um, I had about three different ideas I wanted to express. They should have been three different posts. Um, I was lazy one night and made it one post because I've been sitting on these ideas for months, and I just couldn't get him out. I didn't have the motivation. Um, and people misinterpreted it to mean a lot of different things I, because I tried to conflate these different things that should have been different posts into one post. Um, Apple is not really at fault at all here for this for this part of the market failure. They have other things they could do to make the market better. But this is not Apple's fault. This is not because we don't have trials or anything like that. This is, or paid upgrades, you know, this is uh, simply the, the result of the market having a ton of people in it. A ton of developers do this as we talked about last week. So, you know, it's, it, there's not much Apple can do to fix this problem. There, there's some things they can do to fix other problems. Like, like I mentioned, getting rid of the top lists that won't fix this problem. It will fix other problems or reduce them. But this problem is here to stay because the market is just this big. It's kind of the same way it was with like the, with just companies in general with the dot com uh, thing, right? Where it, you know, it started out if you were an internet company and you had a website, you had a reasonable shot, but then all the websites got better. And very quickly, what evolved was the business model where you get as much venture capital as you can. You try to get as many users as you can by giving away everything you can for free and then figure out how to monetize it later. In the app store, we're not really in the figure out how to monetize it later, but we are in the part where like the goal is get every single human being with an iOS device to download this application and have within this application a way to get money from them. It's already there. Like, you know, people don't have to use it, whether it's like buying magic coins or paying for energy to play your game or whatever the hell it is. Like, the monetization thing is already in there. So in that respect, it's better than the dot-com where they're just like, ah, we'll figure it out later. We just want to get as many people. But that strategy evolved quickly of, like, growth over everything. Get as many users as possible. That is the number one goal. I don't care how many people, I don't care if our conversion rate is 0.001% if we get just millions and millions and millions of users, that's still serious money. Uh, and 
when that happened in the dot com world and it continues to happen, you know, arguably with like what the hell was that uh nineteen billion dollar acquisition? Was it WhatsApp or whatever? Oh yeah, the messaging app, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's still a viable strategy. Like no one is buying WhatsApp if they what WhatsApp pursued the strategy of just just you know, get as many users as possible, become super valuable. Instagram did for that matter too. Instagram's well, app. To be fair, it's a really, really good business model to freak out Facebook. Well, that is the yeah. best possible business model in this entire industry, in the entire tech industry. Just freak out Facebook and you'll get billions. Well, see, the the other like the old strategy before there were big companies like Facebook to buy you for too much money. Uh, I mean, there were always companies to buy you for too much money, but like not like it is today where there's like a, a few vacuuming everything. But the old one was we'll just get a bazillion users. Our growth curve will look like a hockey stick and we'll IPO. And everyone who has a stake in the company will get rich off the IPO. And then the company will go down the tubes. You know, no, like in other words, no one would buy us. We never will figure out how to make money. But everyone who invested in the company made out like a bandit on the IPO. So who the hell cares? And it eventually goes down and somebody buys the scraps or something. You know, the new strategy is get as many users as possible. Yeah. You know, like I said, freak out Facebook or become so big. Like this is the next big thing. Get someone to buy you. And that's how you get your big payday, not from the IPO, but from a big acquisition. And then, you know, whatever. After that, nobody cares. Right. Uh, also, in the App Store, same strategy. Get it. Get big really, really fast. But just like in, in uh, business today, even though that is still a viable strategy and it happens a lot, the other strategies evolve along with it. Not every company that has, you know, not every sort of online focused company decides that its strategy is going to be get as many people as possible as fast as possible. Uh, I'm not sure what the breakdown is. Like, are there more sort of, you know, technology based startups trying to get as many users as possible as fast as possible than there are trying to like sell a product? I mean, obviously when you get into physical goods, it gets different. Like, Nest, the strategy of the Nest company was not to get as many users as possible as fast as possible. I don't know how many uh, thermostats and smoke detectors they sold, but it was not like, you know, WhatsApp type numbers. Uh, but they made a quality product. They charged people for it. And it was enough to get them acquired by somebody who wanted the talents they had. And I, you know, that worked out for them. But they didn't pursue that strategy and it was still successful. So you mentioned before applications where, oh, if it's a specialty app or whatever, it doesn't apply to you. But if you want to uh, go to the mass market, uh, I think there is a spectrum where I think of an application like Capo, where it's it's not like a super specialty app, like something for, you know, uh, someone in, in a very specific field to use. There's tons of musicians. Musicians is a big market, but it's not mass market. Not everyone is a musician. Certainly not everyone is looking for an application to help them with their music uh, creation process. But it's much broader than, you know, like yeah, last week's dental office software. Uh, but musicians are willing to pay for things that help them make music better. Like, especially if your application in these types of cases replaces lots of other much more expensive equipment. Suddenly your $10 app seems like a bargain compared to the $200 worth of equipment it's replacing. Uh, that is a very viable thing to do. Or even like a drawing application. Not everyone needs an application like Acorn or something, right? But the people who do are actually willing to pay money for it. And is that mass market? Well, it's not as mass market as as an instant messaging app or even a podcast app, I think. Uh, but it's much more mass market than some very narrowly defined app that could maybe command $100 or whatever. So what we really want to see is like the breakdown. How many are doing that crazy, get as many people as possible, and then fleece the whales for some percentage or whatever. And to, <laughs> us, to us, it seems like that's big. Like it seems like, oh, that's the entire store. Because that's all we see. They dominate the top list. It pisses us off because we think that's not like a sort of a, a constructive and honorable way to make money. And so to us, it seems like that's bigger than it is. Uh, but I wonder, 
how it compares to that middle ground of people selling applications like, uh, you know, that charge money upfront to not the mass market, but also not to like just a couple hundred people and that, that it works out for them. Um, I mean, I, I, I think our, our, uh, impression of the market is correct that it's mostly those people you know doing tons of stuff because you know you the numbers don't lie they are they do dominate the top lists uh with their stupid free applications within app purchases and everything but i hope that over time just like in the dot-com things i hope over time that that crazy frenzy getting many people as possible thing will sort of not run its course but simmer down a little bit and we will get a healthier kind of middle part of the market uh, from people making applications and selling them to people who actually want to pay money for software. Because in the end, that's what, you know, this is a business of people paying money for software, right? And we all continue to think that that is a thing that people are going to do because software provides value. Speak for yourself. No, you know, like even even the the, the the free applications, like people are paying for software, they're just paying for, you know, virtual currency within software like they're paying they're not getting anything for like they're not getting any physical goods they're putting money in and what they're getting out is an experience so it's like buying a ticket to a movie buying a level for a game or paying money to be able to tap the screen sooner than you could previously tap the screen like they're paying money for essentially nothing and even the big scary gross top end of the market shows that people are willing to do that it should be not outside the realm of possibility to get people to pay money for things that give them value in ways other than entertainment. It's just going to be a smaller market. So I, I don't know what the equilibrium is, but uh, I, I think we're not, what I'm saying is I think we're not there yet. I think we are now tilted still way over into the candy crushes of the world. And there still needs to be a little bit more rocking back towards the middle. We are also sponsored this week by our friends at Hover. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. You know, I, I had a few people on Twitter uh, bothering me about in the last few weeks about how I pronounce Hover. How how are you supposed to pronounce it? You're saying it right. I don't know what they were saying. You pronounce it like H. Am I supposed to say hover? No, you're not. It's hover. I, I maybe it's because you emphasize the the U sound. I don't know. Hover. Just keep just keep saying hover. It's fine. Yeah, you pronounce some things weird, like query instead of query, but uh, hover you get right. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm wondering what. Please, listeners who who criticize my pronunciation of hover, please record an audio file of yourself saying it properly and send it to me because I honestly don't know how I'm supposed to be saying it differently than this. Hover is a domain register that's awesome, basically. You know, we I don't need to explain to you guys what domain names are. Um, I can just tell you what hover is is really good at. So. First of all, their interface is awesome. Uh, it's nice. It's clean. It's quick to do things. I've used many other registrars uh, control panels before, and and hovers is, um, I think, yeah, I can safely say it's the best one I've used. It's because I've used it a lot, and they're almost always universally awful. Um, and hovers is good. That's I mean that's that alone is a reason you should you should go with them. But there's more reasons too. So first of all, they have amazing customer support. You can call them on the phone if you want to, and a human being picks up the phone and can help you. There's no hold, no wait, no transfer phone support. You can also of course email and you know do online stuff if you want to, but that option is always there for you. You can just call them. Uh, they also have great prices. In fact, so there's all these new domain names, like all these crazy new things. Um, like dot plumbing and all this crazy stuff. Most of these new domain names are on sale, uh, big sales in uh, in the month of August. So if you listen to this in time, you should be able to catch this sale. 
Uh, if you want any of these new domains, check out Hover. They're on sale for often up to 50% off. They're deeply discounted, uh, maybe even more than that on some of them. Uh, check it out. If you want, like, you know, you can get .ninja, uh, .guru. There's all sorts of horrible ones and a few good ones that you can get. So uh, check that out, too. Hover includes things for free that other people make you pay for. For example, you get who is privacy on every domain for free. Um, you can, you know, there's all sorts of stuff you can do with Hover. And it's, they have email hosting. They have Google apps for your domain hosting. They also have this really cool service, which I talked a little bit about last time, called Valet Transfers, where if you want to transfer a domain name into Hover from another registrar, you can do it the normal way if you want to, but it, there's a very good chance when you transfer domain names that you're going to mess something up. Uh, usually it's DNS settings, stuff like that. If you want to, optionally, Hover will, at no additional charge, log into your old registrar. You, you, you just give them your credentials. They will log into your old registrar and do the transfer for you. And you can often do this with a very large number of domain names. Like, don't think you'll have too many because they'll still do it. It's pretty impressive. So that's, a, and I, I don't know of any other registrar that has that service. So give Hover a try. Um, we have a new coupon code this week. Uh, the coupon code this week is Vinyl Sounds Better. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. If you go to Hover.com and use coupon code Vinyl Sounds Better, all one word, you, I assume you can spell Vinyl Sounds Better, uh, you will get 10% off your first purchase at Hover. And uh, really, again, I can't recommend them enough. They're a domain registrar that's awesome, basically. That's, that's all I need to tell you guys. You, know, you, you guys are geeks. You, you know what this is about. You can get so many domains these days. They're, you can get them for humor. You can get them for business. You can get them for your own personal site or email address. You know, if, if your blog is like something.wordpress.com, that doesn't look very good. Like, you know, just get your own domain, manage it, manage your identity. There's tons of reasons to buy domain names these days. If you're drunk and have a funny idea for a domain name or an app, just buy the name. Great. Go to Hover. Uh, tons of reasons to buy domain names. And if you're going to buy it ever, you should buy it at Hover. So thanks a lot to Hover for sponsoring our show once again. Don't forget to use coupon code VINYLSOUNDSBETTER for 10% off. I love that they basically forced you to, to admit that vinyl does indeed sound better. Also, I'd like to add before anyone jumps on me that earlier today, I noticed that .bmw is a top-level domain now. And I did not um, at mention or anything hover in that tweet. And they replied to my tweet with the following. It says, at Casey List, .bmw is being operated as a closed TLD, so not available to the public. No white dot BMW for you. And then they had a link to the actual registrar page, which I thought was hysterical. So even when they're kind of sort of trolling, they're super nice people. Yeah, and they're fans of ours too. So, you know, they're, they're good people. How bad could they be if they like this show? Um, let's move on to uh, TiVo. Apparently there's been an update. They're still in business? Yeah, who knew? I've been waiting for this update for a while since I read about it, but they do like the, uh, sort of a staged rollout. I think I don't know how they determine the stages. But anyway, I finally got it on my TiVo. So the thing with TiVo, I've been complaining for many years that the user interface is not as responsive as it should be, especially after they went to high definition. Uh, at first, they didn't have their menuing interface wasn't high definition, even though the video was. Then they added a high definition menuing interface uh, written in Flash, and it was super duper slow and terrible, and it just made me sad uh and that was the case until my current tivo which is the tivo romeo uh which has a much more responsive user interface much more responsive than, than the previous ones um there's still some standard def menus in there which is shameful in this late stage but anyway at least they made the main interface that you use faster well so this update 
supposedly was going to make the older TiVos have the same interface as the most recent models. Uh, it would look the same, and it was supposedly much, much faster. And I, I wish I could find this for the show notes. I actually spent a, a while looking for it uh, a couple days ago. Maybe someone in the chat room will know. Uh, they stopped using Flash for their interface, so good on them. Uh, whether that was why it was slow or just a side effect of something else, bottom line is the Flash interface on the old Devos is terribly slow. This new interface uses something to replace Flash, and I can't for the life of me remember what the hell the name of the technology is. It's not something you've heard of. It's like a weird name. It's not Swift. Obviously, that's popping into my head because of the language things. Maybe it started with an S or something. If anyone in the chat room knows what they're using instead of Flash, because there was this big presentation from the TiVo people that said, uh, here is how we evaluated this new technology, and here's how we sort of ported our existing infrastructure over to it and figured out what the issues were in terms of you know CPU performance and memory usage and all this other stuff. It was an interesting presentation that I, of course, read and just completely lost track of, and it's nowhere in any of my browser histories, and I wouldn't know what to search for anyway. Anyway, bottom line, this update came. Uh, I got it on my TiVo premiere that I moved upstairs when I got the new TiVo Romeo downstairs. Uh, it does look like the new interface, and it is way, way faster. It is not as fast as, as it is on the Romeos, I feel like, but it is much faster. So if you have an old TiVo premiere, it is no longer embarrassingly, disgustingly slow if you have the latest version of the software, which is a free update to everybody. So that's kind of good news. Like if you if you uh, happened to buy one and didn't know how slow it was, or if you were holding off buying a used one because they're all slow and gross, they've actually made their hardware faster with software, and I give them a big thumbs up. Nice. Uh, really quickly before we move on to topics, because we haven't gone on long enough with follow-up. This is still follow-up? <laughs> yeah, sort of. How's the <laughs> review, John? You can ask me this every week. It's like torture. It's like <laughs> this is me encouraging you to accomplish the review as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. So this weekend, uh, my wife was nice enough to take the kids out to do various activities, and I got a lot of stuff done which only serves to remind me how much more I have to do is like, I feel all accomplished. And I like wrote an entire section and a half. I'm like, Oh great. Only like nine more to go. Just do that nine more times. And then you look at the calendar and you think about the possibility of that. And yeah, it's bad. Okay. On that happy note, uh, Marco, do you want to quickly talk about the, uh, overcast update that is pending? Is that correct? Uh, well, first, let me tell you about our last sponsor because we're really running long here. Our last sponsor is lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com. Lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. You can instantly stream thousands of online video courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, and more. Lynda.com works directly with industry experts and software companies to provide timely training, often the same day new versions or releases hit the market, so you're always up to speed with new stuff. So, for example, if like Adobe makes new Creative Suite version, they have videos usually on day one to help you learn all the new stuff. Um, all these video courses on Lynda are produced at the highest quality. This is not like the homemade videos you see on YouTube. These courses are broken into bite-sized pieces so you can learn at your own pace and learn from the start to finish or just find a quick answer by skimming through and you know, going in the middle somewhere. They have tools on these, including searchable transcripts, playlists, and they, they, they even have the thing, if you use LinkedIn, I'm sorry, but if you still use LinkedIn, you, they have little certificates that somehow you, a certificate of course completion. So when you watch something on, if you watch like a whole course in Linda, you can have that published into your LinkedIn profile to advertise to other unfortunate souls who are using LinkedIn uh, that you completed a course. And this could help your job prospects because if you're in a kind of environment where people look at LinkedIn, 
they probably care about stuff like what you know, your qualifications, all this stuff. So that's another fun thing they've added. Now, lynda.com courses cover beginner to advanced, all experience levels. Um, they also have these cool mobile apps. Uh, iPhone, iPad, and Android are all supported. Um, now, you get one low monthly price of $25 gets you unlimited access to the entire lynda.com library. They have over 100,000 videos, and they're always adding more. 25 bucks a month gets you unlimited access to that. And if you upgrade to one of their, pre- one of their premium plans... Um, you can also download the videos for offline storage on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device and watch them offline. Um, premium plan members can also download project files and practice along with the instructor if you want to. So fun stuff there. Uh, even if you just do the $25 a month basic plan, you get tons of value out of that. That's, uh, they gave me a trial of it and I kept going with it. It's fantastic. Um, they have all sorts of topics in their courses, uh, HTML, PHP, MySQL, uh, iOS 7, um, even things like uh, like iPad tips and tricks if you want to, you know, something like that, or if you know someone in your life who needs something like that. Very useful. How to create web apps, how to use like Perl 6. Is that a thing yet, John? It's sort of a thing. <laughs> That's one <laughs> of those like things Perl. that has a does not have a short answer. So, all right. So, yeah, th- yeah all sorts of great things from technical stuff to apps like logic and final cut pro you know the, the creative suite apps uh down to things like software web design web web page making all this cool stuff uh open gl they have they, they even have a course here that's called microsoft intelligence business stack fundamentals i'm guessing somebody out there knows what that means but it's definitely not me but they have it and that's why i could watch that and i can learn it if i want to um, they also have more important things like managing your mobile photos, which, as we know, is not a simple topic. They have videos to help you out with that. So go to lynda.com slash ATP and you will get a free seven-day trial. It's a great offer. And then if you want to continue after that, again, just 25 bucks a month for unlimited access to all the videos in their entire library. Go to lynda.com slash ATP to try it free for seven days. Once again, that's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash ATP. All right, so tell us about this Overcast update. I've been preparing the the 102 update for a few weeks now. It's been a, been a little while. And uh, it's mostly bug fixes and minor improvements. And then a few days ago, I got a notice in the App Store uh, Rejection Center. That, uh, what is it called? The Resolution Center. Yes, where they post rejection messages now. Um, so I got a notice in the, in the Rejection Center saying, um, upon reevaluation, I, I, I hadn't even submitted an update at this point. They just out of the blue said, upon reevaluation, uh, we've decided that you're in violation of this rule 17.2, uh, which mean, which is the rule that basically says you can't require uh, account-based logins with personal information for things that basically shouldn't require a login. So I responded, first of all, saying, well, there really aren't any features in my app that don't need the account. The entire app is account-based. And they, Oh, and they said you need to submit a build that fixes this within two weeks uh, or we'll pull you off the store, basically. They, you know, they said it nicer, but that's, that's, that's the gist of it. I first responded you know, with my thing saying, well, trying to, basically trying to explain my way out of it. Uh, the reason why... I, I didn't explain all this, but the reason why I didn't have account, or an account-free option at the beginning, and I've, I explained this a little bit before, I think, but the main reason why is that you think of the situation where suppose somebody has... A, an, an anonymous sync account, which is what, kind of what I call them on the back end. So these anonymous sync accounts, um, then they, at some point, ha- they, they launch their iPad or whatever. They, they launch a device, on a, they launch the app on a different device. And they see a login screen and they, they assume mistakenly that they've created an account. 
So they type in a username and password. They ignore the text in the box that says, this account doesn't exist, do you want to create it? And they just click yes, because that's what most people do. Then they're presented with this newly created account that is blank. And then they email me saying, I can't believe you deleted all my stuff. It's all gone. Oh my God, you suck. One star refund. Everything's horrible. You've ruined my life. <laughs> I saw this happen so many times with Instapaper. This is how people actually behave. Trust me. It's like, this will happen. And because people, you know, people don't read text on screens and they don't remember, understandably, because there's so many things out there. They don't remember what they've made accounts for and what they haven't. Um, they often will do it with two different email addresses, but not, not much I can do about that. So I wanted to avoid this, this support issue of what do you do with, you know, with the, with this kind of situation? It's not good. It, it, if those people write in, I can, I, I can explain to them, oh, well, you know, you have this other account here. If I can find it, if I, if I could figure out who it is, which I probably can't with anonymous stuff, but anyway, uh, you know, you could try with support, but the problem is most of the time those people won't even email in support. They'll just assume that I'm a terrible person and an incompetent programmer. I lost everything of theirs and they will just be angry and never buy my stuff again. They'll tell their friends how much it sucks or they'll post a review or they'll get a refund from Apple. All of which suck for me. So I really did not want to go down that route. So that's why I said, you know, let me just require it at the beginning It'll just be email account, you know, no usernames. That's I even answered that part in the fact because I'm like, no usernames necessary for this because, you know, I had it with Instapaper first where it was at first you could enter anything for your username, email or not, just any string of characters would work. And I had the problem again if people would log into a new device, type in an email address when they had used username before or vice versa and create a new account by mistake and think everything was gone. So all that stuff sucks. I wanted to avoid it. So that, that's why I did it the way I did at launch here. And I mentioned earlier, you know, when I when I launched, I believe on our on the launch show here when we were talking about this, I believe I said, you know, something like half of all people who downloaded it were actually creating accounts. If I ever wanted to raise that rate, I would have to add an option like this. I was considering it, but I wanted to avoid the support issues. So anyway, back to modern day. Apple tells me a few days ago you have to do this within two weeks, um, and I explained my way out of it. Maybe. But Apple doesn't respond quickly to those things. I, I offered in, in the thing, I said, you know what, if you want, you can call me and we can talk about it on the phone. Like two, two days later, and they, or two or three days later, they tell me, we will schedule a call within three days. Now, I have a two-week deadline, and I'm sitting on this bug fix update that I really need to get out there because there's it, 102 fixed some pretty important bugs. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know what, this is too long. I can fight this now. I might not win. If I don't win, I'll be down a whole week. Uh, at least, probably longer. So then I'll have to really rush out a fix. Furthermore, if I do win this argument, there's, you know, if I'm living on the edge of a rule, I tell people this all the time, don't rely on living on the edge of a rule in the App Store guidelines. If I lose this, if I win this argument now and convince them it's okay for me to not, to to require accounts now, there is nothing guaranteeing them from, from, uh, there's nothing guaranteeing that I will always be exempt from this rule. And so I could, at some point in the future, submit a really important update that fixes some really important bug and have it be held up in review because they're gonna get they're gonna get me in this rule again. It's a it's a terrible situation to try to always assume I'll be able to get around this rule. So I decided even before I heard back from them, and I still haven't heard back from them. I decided, you know what? Let me just I'll just do it. You know, I was I was on the fence about doing this at all to begin with. You know, it wasn't like I was always totally against doing this. I just wanted to minimize those issues. But I'm like, you know, let me just do this. I'll probably get more users and it'll be all right. Fine. 
so I did it and I submitted, uh, I, I tested it for a few, I, I, I did it the whole thing over about four days, um, implementation to submission. I submitted it today at noon. It was approved today at 8 p.m. Wow. This is remarkable. I assume that if you have one of these open issues on your on your app, which, you know, it's marked on iTunes Connect and everything, I assume that any update you submit gets bumped to the front of the queue because it's it's to fix that. You know, it's funny you say that because a friend of the show, Daniel Jowkett, was saying that earlier today um, to somebody on Twitter. I think it might have been uh, Brianna Wu from Giant Space Cat. But yeah, that that corroborates his theory as well. And the funny thing was, I was I was very upset when they when I first got this because I was like I was literally about to submit 102 then, and I was like a day away from submitting. It. I was just in final beta testing, and I was so mad. I'm like, now I'm going to be delayed. I'm gonna, all these bug fixes are going to be delayed, uh, you know, because I have to now do this and test this and everything. Um, turns out that was about a week ago, <laughs> and review times recently have been about a week. So I think it, it was kind of a blessing in disguise that, you know, I had to do this, yes, and, the, and that it, it, I, it's a better product for it, for the most part. There are going to be support issues. I'm I'm going to be annoyed to deal with them. People are going to be upset. Um, but it is overall, I think, probably a gain. We'll see. And it is nice that, you know, because of that jumping the queue thing, uh, this was released today, which was probably going to be roughly when 102 would have been released if I submitted it at the normal time anyway. So that it's been a busy week. It's been a little bit of a stressful evening because I, I didn't have enough time to test this compared to what I usually do. And, uh, I assumed that I'd be able to test it during the app review process a little bit more. And, uh, you know, you can, you can only reject the binary if it's, if it's broken and you shouldn't make a habit of doing that all the time, but it's nice to have like that extra week of testing just in case. I had eight hours of extra testing this time, so we'll see. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's what's going on. Anyway, that's uh, that's about it. What's, what else is new? Someone in the chat room did find what technology TiVo is using instead of Flash. It is called H-A-X-E, which I'm going to say is either hacks or hakes. Oh, that's pronounced hover. <laughs> it is. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's like a cross-platform toolkit slash cross-compiler. I think you can write code in their language, their high-level language, and generate code for all sorts of other platforms. Uh, it's an open source thing. Anyway, bottom line is it's uh, way faster than Flash, way faster than TiVo's Flash implementation. Uh, and there's an article we'll also put in the show notes from, from Slash Gear talking about how ditching Flash could mean that you could put the TiVo interface on other devices like Xbox and Fire TV, and I don't see how that wouldn't have been possible also with their gross Flash interface. I would also say, by the way, that the TiVo's interface, like it, they would probably kill to have like UI kit dropped upon them and say, here, why don't you just make your user interface in this? Like a sort of, uh, you know, a mature IDE, well-established API that when done correctly makes extremely performant because like, what is TiVo? It's, it's a bunch of text lists. Like the video part is the video part, but when you're going through menus, it's just like big, long scrolling lists of text with various options that you can do to each selected item and in, in menus. Like it's not rocket science. Uh, and you know they would probably need a more powerful CPU to to run UI Kit in there. But anyway, uh, I don't think hakes or hacks is the be all end all of interface things. I just am glad that my TiVo got faster. <laughs> all right, 
this has been remarkably positive from you on TiVo tonight, John. This is are, are you okay? I I always want I want them. I think they should sponsor the show. I don't understand why they I mean, I know I complain about them all the time, but I continue to buy them. And when I buy them, I buy whatever the <laughs> most expensive one is that they sell. And I keep doing that year after year because I still think it's the best. And so if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I have complaints, but I have complaints about everything. They should sponsor the show. The strong Syracuse endorsement. I buy this even though I hate it. <laughs> well, thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week. Uh, Automatic, Lynda.com, and Hover. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L. ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. overthink the hover thing like i well i actually looked it up in the dictionary just to make sure we're not all crazy and we're not it's 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 the same little upside down e is at the beginning of the word other hover other yeah no I, honestly i i want people to record an audio file and send it to me of how they think i should be saying it where people you by people you mean like the three people yeah. who are crazy about this is it all like australians or something because they have a tendency to pronounce things just completely wrong like cash instead of cash for example oh yeah, but I th- we're just we're confining ourselves to American English, and then we're going to go to like the debate of what is unaccented American English. Is there such a thing, or is there not? That's a good question. Well, there there's like there's like the newscaster accent, right? It's it's like kind of kind of midwestern, kind of yeah. averaged. It's you know, but that's just defined by the newscasters who were famous in those roles for a long time. Like, so Dan Rather has an accent because he was famous for a long time we we say oh that's that's the newscast or walter cronkite or whoever like a few individual people from actual places in the country with actual accents hiding under their newscasteriness i don't know anyway <laughs> it's, it's hover all right what else is going on uh, i can't yeah somebody in the chat just pointed out was this all follow-up yes it was but like i mean it's fine to have that because like talking about overcast it's always is it always going to be follow-up because we've talked about overcast before therefore every time you talk <laughs> about overcast again it is follow-up eh, you know we need to follow up on last week's apple news with this week's apple news yeah, and the jared sinclair thing you didn't uh emphasize that i think this was sent because it, not a lot of people so like one or two emails or tweets that thought we were trying to say that jared's post was blaming apple and I listened back to the show. We didn't actually say that, but I but the 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 word Jared and the and the phrase uh, someone to blame were in close enough proximity to each other that people could have made that uh, mistaken <laughs> assumption. But it like it was, and plus we all ramble and don't talk in complete sentences, or maybe it's just me. Anyway, uh, lots of posts about this whole App Store stuff, and a lot of them are looking for someone or something to blame. And then there was Jared's post. We're not necessarily saying that Jared was trying to hide something. So that's why he wrote in to clarify. And I'm glad he did because this explanation, and this is the this is the magic writing technique 
uh, that I try to use on myself and my children. You write on your children? No, I try to use this <laughs> trick on my children. So you write something and you think you've said what you want to say, but then people who read it uh, like misinterpreted or whatever. And then you, you know, the, the next task is explain to someone who is misunderstanding what you wrote, explain what you actually meant. Right. And when you do that, then you say, why don't you just write that in the first place? I mean, obviously that's, you know, a little glib, but this little introductory thing of saying, here's why I'm, here's why I wrote this. It was, you know, Brent said this, a lot of people looked at me and I wanted the people to know, actually, I'm not a good example of that because here's why. Uh, and he, I mean, that's in the post it's in there, but like when you find yourself having to explain to somebody who read what you wrote and still didn't understand it, you have to explain it again, like more clearly, you know, emphasizing the parts that they're getting wrong, that makes for stronger writing. So in the same way as like, you know, having to explain something to somebody makes you understand it better. Uh, doing this exercise and doing it all before you actually publish anything, uh, is useful. Like, you know, when, when, uh, someone's having trouble writing something, uh, whether it's my children or to someone else, you just say, well, don't write anything. Just explain to me what you want to say. And a lot of people can do that. They're like, well, what I want to say is blah, 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 blah. And if you just write down everything they say during that part and put it in front of them, you say, here, type this. You just write it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. So on a random note, tell me that I shouldn't sell my privacy slash soul to get symmetric file service. So what are they asking you to do exactly? I'm not clear what you have to give up. So they, they know you have a child on the way, so that's probably true. I've been spending so much damn time on babiesrus.com. No, uh, no, they know you have a child on the way, so that's what they want. You're your firstborn. Oh, that's all? Yeah, oh. that's it. Psh, worth it. Uh, <laughs> no, it's like an HL this. baby. <laughs> wow. What is that actually from? You're talking about Australia. You know, not you never saw that movie. I don't. Yeah. I can't get the title off the top of my head. Chat room, help me with the title of that movie. See how fast you can get it. All right. Well, they're doing that. Um, I saw. Um, I think it was Zach Burr talking about this earlier. Um, I forget who it was, but I'm looking at. So there's a link that I put in the chat that's a public link where it doesn't really say anything about getting increased speeds, but behind my private page you know like my account information my rewards plus sharing online just got faster great news you're eligible for an upload speed to equal your current download speed at no additional cost to you simply click here and enroll in our my rewards plus program it's easy and free just our way of thanking you for being a loyal verizon customer faster upload speeds means better sharing experiences that's powerful and i guess they like snoop your stuff and you get 75 or i would have 75 75 instead of um 7535. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what exactly this is. That's the thing. is It's unclear to me what exactly they're doing. Because they can already snoop your stuff. Right. But is this just is this just like they're going to start sending you like gift card crap promos and stuff like that? I mean, I think because I mean, Veri I, I already get spam from Verizon in the mail almost every day trying to upgrade me to a, a higher plan that includes like TV and stuff because I, I just have the Internet and phone. And and I called them, like, there's no way to opt out of this. There's no way to get them to stop bugging me. I would imagine they're probably already doing creepy things, like selling my information to Starbucks and everything else. Like, I think that's actually exactly what they're doing, because it's talking about all these particular vendors, like Target, and ExxonMobil, and Amazon, and Dunkin' Donuts, and Starbucks, and Panera Bread, and Visa prepaid card, and blah, blah, blah. But see, so they're saying, apparently there's a system where you gather points to do something. And the way you can gather points is 
to like them on Facebook, to go to their website, to refer a friend. Celebrate your birthday? Well, I celebrate my birthday every year. Am I, are they tracking that somehow? <laughs> Rent or buy an on-demand movie? I mean, so what? what is this? You know, you can usually, I don't know the specifics of this deal, but you can usually take whatever service they want and then use it in such a way that you don't have any interaction with them. I'm really close to not having any interaction with Verizon at all because I don't have any of their boxes. I don't use their router. I don't have a video on demand. Like all these services that they want to sell me and everything, I don't see. The only one they've still got me on is their stupid DNS because if you use Google DNS or something, you don't get good GOIP routing. Even though Google says you're supposed to, practice has shown me that if I use uh, Google's IP or open D- or Google's DNS or open DNS or something like that. I get worse speeds from like downloading, you know, Apple software where I should be pulling it from Akamai across the river and I'm not because it thinks I'm someplace else. Uh, so I can't entirely like and, and Verizon, what does Verizon do with DNS? Give them an inch like, you know, you type in the wrong URL and you get some big, stupid advertising parked page yep. and Verizon DNS is super slow and crappy and I don't like it. So but I'm really close to getting rid of it. So it seems like if you opted into this thing and you did a similar scenario where you got rid of everything, didn't have any boxes, didn't use their router, didn't use their DNS, didn't use anything like that, didn't have video on demand, I guess, like, what's left? Like like Marco said, they're already, believe me, they're already selling every ounce of your information to somebody. Like, well, yeah, They're a horrible company. Like, everything about Verizon as a company is just horrible. Well, but everybody sells all your information. Like, any information you give them, of course they're selling it to everybody. It's in all, like, there's no more giving away of your information that they could be doing. They're already doing it as hard as they can. So, unless they can make you interact, like, oh, here, take the survey to tell me what you thought of these detergent brands. Unless unless they have some way to get you, like, you'll be using your computer and all of a sudden you go to a site. Instead of going to the site, you see the stupid survey that comes up that wants you to rank the movies you've seen recently or some crazy thing like that, like... That seems like the only way they can get you, but I, I don't know. I, I guess I wouldn't want to be the one to experiment with this and find it out because downgrading from it or getting rid of it is probably a super pain, too. My rewards plus points are easy to get. The only hard part will be deciding which rewards you want. This includes options such as use the MyFios registered trademark app, connect to us through Facebook, like us on Facebook, order new equipment, try Verizon's in-home agent, Rent or buy a Fios trademark on-demand movie? Oh my god, these are so... I cannot decide which of these things to start with. These all sound so appealing. Well, so you don't have to, you don't have to do any of those. Like, that's kind of like the free, like, free antivirus software I get as part of my thing. Free online backup, like, just, I just never do those. Right. never look at those. So if you never do any of those things, you never like them on Facebook, you never download their app, you never download their free antivirus software, like, they will email me and say, hey, I've noticed you've had this service for seven years that have never downloaded our free online backup <laughs> software. It's like, it's good that you noticed that. That's not like, <laughs> whatever. Like, they're always going to spam you. They're always going to send you stupid cards in the mail that you put right into the recycle bin. Uh, but I don't think they can make you do anything unless they start getting intrusive. Like the DNS thing is literally intrusive. Like you mistype a URL and you're looking at a bunch of Verizon crap. That is intrusive, which is why I wish I could get rid of it. But everything else you can just simply not use, I suppose. I mean, it seems to me like they're already snooping everything anyway. I'm already getting spammed anyway. Why not just get 7575? But I need you. You guys are supposed to convince me not to do this. You're not supposed to convince me to do it. Well, w- when they announced these these plans a few weeks ago, they said they would be rolled out automatically for free. That's not true. Now that see, if they're actually requiring this, then that was BS. And it wouldn't surprise me if that was BS because they're they're a giant ISP and they're a horrible company, like all giant ISPs. Uh, so that would wouldn't surprise me. However, that was if if this is indeed what's required to get this, that is complete BS. 
By the way, the movie was A Cry in the Dark, 1988, starring Meryl Streep. <laughs> and that isn't it originally like a dingo ate my baby or something like that? Yes, that's yes. People know it from Seinfeld, but yes. So what I'm hearing is I should be the guinea pig and do this. Nah. I don't know. You always move. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because that's totally an easy solution to this problem. Right. And then the post office sells your information to everyone else when you move. Yep. And uh, so then everyone tracks you anyway. Hmm. Fun stuff. Whatever. All right. What else is going on? Want to do titles? The Sprung Parts is pretty good. That's not what the show is about. Though. Fleece the Whales. Fleece the Whales was more of what the show was about than The Sprung yeah. Parts. Well, I'm biased, but I did like Fleece the Whales. That is pretty that good. good. We've said that many times before, though. It's just like a, it's not like something we're making up. I used to get, it's, it's a funny concept to somehow combine <laughs> whales and fleece. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, I, I never liked the term whales anyway, but it's, I don't know where it got its start. I first heard it in, like, uh, is it Casino? Yeah, thing? exactly. Cas- casinos. Yeah, I think I first heard it in Boiler Room. <laughs> it's, it's definitely like, you know, it, it got its start in, in businesses that don't respect people. <laughs> <laughs> for sure and speaking it's, of verizon it's yeah it's it's definitely not a respectful term which is why zynga uses it and all these stupid free-to-play games that try to abuse people's psychology to pay them more money uh yeah it, it's not it's not a great term it's like eyeballs well it's not that it's disrespectful if anything it's disrespectful for the people who aren't whales because it's like none of our customers matter except for these five people and so the, i mean for casinos these five high rollers get everything Right. And everyone else, you don't matter because the bottom line is we make most of our money from these from these high rollers, not five people, but whatever it is like such a small and everyone else is just there kind of like to fill seats. Right. It's all about the whales. It also kind of insults whales. Well, I mean, they're they're treated well. They are considered important. Uh, It does. I mean, you wouldn't talk to them and tell them that they are whales because then they would feel like, wait a second. You know what this means is that. My money is leaving my pocket and going into your pocket. But I mean, especially with gambling, it's like with, you know, maybe that's like they understand that. Like they, they know when they go to Las Vegas with two million dollars and come back with zero dollars, they had a good time. That's worth two million dollars to them. Whatever. I don't, I don't understand what they're thinking. But anyway, the Zynga whales probably worse because it's like, I feel like playing these games or buying in-app purchases there is no opportunity to win. Like even in a casino, the house is going to win almost certainly. But at least there's some slim possibility that you could get lucky once. Like it's, you're never going to become a millionaire playing Candy Crush. So it's like a 0% versus 0.001%. The 0.001 feels better. You get some excitement. Even if you don't <laughs> win, you feel like during that period of time when I lost, there was a chance I could have won. And that was exciting. <laughs> and I paid for that. I don't, I don't, I don't oh, gamble. Oh, goodness. Uh, really? <laughs> I never would have guessed. I, I am so surprised by that statement. Yeah. <laughs> Although if I did gamble, I would do with... Uh, you guys don't, aren't watching Leftovers. Never mind. I can't. Nope. I would do that that style of game. Was, there was a silly gambling sequence where someone uh, goes to a roulette wheel and bets on red three times in a row. And those type of odds I can figure out with like pencil and paper and fractions. And I could say, all right, well, I can calculate these odds. Uh, well, wait a minute. Wait, hold on. Did he say it will land on red three times in a row? Yeah, I understand. And make that the bet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, there, there were pigeons involved and premonitions and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a television show, not a real what? one. But, uh, but the whole point is like, you know, so he, he doubles his money and, the, the, you know, the next time it comes around, if you put all your money back on for another 50-50 shot, uh, you know, and just do that several times, you can, you know, 
the ma- through the magic of doubling if you keep winning, but then the odds of it being anyway, whatever. <laughs> That's what I would do. So it means I would Im- immediately lose most of the time uh, or immediately win. And then you don't have to sit there and do anything that's skill-based or complicated or takes a long time. So your goal with this activity that most people do for entertainment value would be to get it over with as quickly as possible and just leave. Uh, well, so the whole thing is like people go to Vegas and like I'm going to Vegas for like $500 and like I don't care if I come home with zero. $500 is my entertainment budget, which is the way the way you should do it if you're not addicted to gambling, right? You just go there. You say this amount of money <laughs> I'm going to spend and... I fully recognize that I could come home with zero of it, but that's fine. I'm willing to pay $500 for a fun weekend with the excitement and the possibility of winning or whatever. Uh, but if you don't like actually playing the games, if you don't like blackjack or poker or, poker or any of these games, like you don't enjoy the actual playing of the game, you just get that part over really fast. Just put $500 on black spin, and then you win or you're lost. If you won, you leave. If you lost, you didn't. You're done in like five minutes. Then you can just, I don't know, get on the plane and leave again. Can you tell I've never been to Vegas? <laughs> I just I love that you're you're optimizing for let's end the fun as quickly as possible. Well, but it's not fun. Like I was like, there's, if there's no fun to be had, if you don't like playing blackjack, if you don't like sitting at a bar, if you don't like playing poker, if you don't like any of those things, that's not the fun part. The only fun part is that brief moment when you might win or you know when you might gain money or lose money. You can get that over with really quickly. Like, well, I won, yeah, I'm happy. Well, I lost, no, I didn't. And you did have that brief moment of excitement, and that was it. Well, why not just do it online and save yourself the flight? That's true. Although online uh, gambling is illegal in the U.S., so you'd have to do one of those offshore things, and it's really pain to get money in and out of those things. So, How do you know that? <laughs> I was about to say, not that you would know. I worked for an online gaming company uh, many years ago. We didn't take U.S. play because it's illegal. Wow. That's why they, but why you we were out of based business. in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, uh, the the actual servers were an Indian reservation in Canada, as they have to be, blah, blah, blah. They but, weren't in yeah. Sealand? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, we were we were uh, crushed by competitors who took U.S. play because they were based in the Bahamas and didn't have any U.S. resident employees. Because people in the United States, surprise, want to gamble online. And if you don't take their business, someone else will and that someone else will get much bigger, faster than you. Well, so you I didn't realize you worked in the gaming market as well, because my first job out of college was uh, Indian casinos in Oklahoma or Native American casinos, whatever. the Yeah, the uh, slot slot machine things, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it was bingo, but we had reels on the machine. So you thought you were playing a slot machine, but really you were playing bingo. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. You explained on, on uh, Pragmatic, right? About how like... Uh, it was either that or debug, one or the other. Oh, yeah, yeah. But like, the, yeah, I think it was debug. You're right. But yeah, like some technicality of like this type of gaming was allowed and this type of gaming wasn't allowed. So you yep. did something that was technically allowed, uh, even though it looked like a slot machine, right? Correct. Something like that. Yep. It wasn't a skill game. And so poker, blackjack, etc., were considered skill games. I don't know why a straight up slot machine wasn't allowed. I think because it had to be multiplayer. And so the bingo was strictly speaking multiplayer. So all these, uh, all these DOS machines had like some sort of TCP networking that were going to, I think, a Windows server that would issue the bingo cards and pull the same numbers for everyone on the floor. It was weird. Whatever. So are we going with uh, Fleece Whales? Yeah, we have to. It's too good. <laughs> Fair enough. What else going on? Anything? You want to try to squeeze in this Wii U thing in 30 seconds? Not really. Sure. Damn it. Read, why don't you read the, uh, describe the tweet sequence, Marco? All right. So uh, Patrick Thornton, PW Thornton on Twitter, uh, said, also, you guys need to talk about how the Wii U quietly became the next-gen system with by far the best games. 
I replied, saying, could be a good topic. The Wii U is the only next-generation system I've, I've been tempted to try because of its games. Uh, and that's true, basically. You know, I mostly with everyone raving about how good Mario Kart is, uh, the Wii U is the only next-gen system that, I, that I'm tempted to try. Um, however, I still haven't bought one because I keep reminding myself that I will probably never actually play it in practice because I'm not a very good gamer. Yeah, Patrick's tweet is just an accurate description of the current situation and not a revelation about a reality that people don't realize. Yes, the Wii U does have some games that are reviewed well that people like, but doesn't change how many Wii U's are in the market, does not change the cat- the size of the Wii U game catalog, does not change the pipeline of upcoming Wii U games, does not change the fact that <laughs> pretty much every uh, anticipated or currently popular AAA title is available for PC, Xbox One, and PlayStation 4 and not the Wii U because it can't run them and it has a small installed base. Like, all these things, they all continue to be true. Uh, Nintendo's got its work cut out for it. So uh, that, that's why I thought this was a tweet. Like, the, the people are surprised to learn that the third-place game console that nobody wants has some good games uh of course it does i mean if people think people don't buy the wii u because it stinks no it's like when the new zelda comes out for the wii u i fully expect that it will be highly satisfying to rabid zelda fans like myself that doesn't make the system more successful that doesn't make it like oh you should totally buy a wii u now because it's got these three good really awesome games and people point out there's nothing i really want to play on the playstation 4 i don't have a playstation 4 yet either because there's nothing i really want to play on it but I know that the games pipeline, the upcoming games pipeline for the PlayStation 4 is crazily big and good and has exciting things in it, including a game that I've been waiting for for seven years, which may never be released. Uh, the Wii U game pipeline looks like a desert and it's sad and it makes me sad. Uh, so I do have a Wii U. I don't have a PlayStation 4, but over the long haul in this generation, unless it's intended as something drastic to turn it around, they're going to continue to not get the popular AAA games. And every year or two, they're going to come out with one or two gems because they're really good at making games. But that's not going to be enough to make a difference, it doesn't seem like. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of felt like like the reason why the Wii U seemed interesting to me is not because it's a great game system. It's because I kept hearing about these good games for it. And, you know, if I wanted to academically buy the best game system, I'd probably buy the PS4. I don't think it would be much of a decision. But... I don't care much about games. And and so all the games that are not that are coming out that are big blockbusters that are not going to be available on the Wii U are very likely to be games I'm not going to play anyway and not care about anyway. The problem is because I'm so nonchalant and not involved with gaming, I'm probably not even involved enough to own a Wii U. I'd probably play Mario Kart for a few days and play Mario Super 3D World whatever for another few days and then never t- never look at them again. So that's why I'm not going to get it. But um, you don't hear anybody talking about the great games on the PS4 or the Xbox One. Well, you do if you read gaming sites because, I mean, everyone's talking about Destiny. And that's that's a cross-platform game uh, everywhere except for the Wii U, of course. Uh, but that is a really highly anticipated, sure to be, almost certainly going to be popular game. Uh, if you don't read about people being excited about that or it's because you're not reading gaming sites because you're not a console gamer, but like it, early in any console's life, the launch games are usually crap and then it takes a while for things to get up to speed and then one or two gems come in. This is actually the nicest generation in that the indie games very quickly, like you got indie ports of, of games that already knew were good that you were available that are now available on the consoles because they all have online stores uh, and 
a couple of the post-launch games haven't been that bad, but like a console generation, it's it's the, they're in it for the long haul, and the catalog and the upcoming game releases all look good, all highly anticipated by people who like PlayStation 4s. And Sony just announced their sales numbers at some uh, gaming, uh, what the hell is it? Press conference at some gaming convention in Europe. They said they uh, their install base is 10 million now. Which is pretty good. That seems pretty it's, good, right? It's been out for nine months, 10 million, roughly a million a month. That's It's it's growing. Uh, it's selling faster than the PS3 did, which is not that much of a feat because the PS3 was like 600 bucks and had a slow start. Uh, but, you know, they're doing well. Uh, Nintendo is not selling a million Wii U's a month. Yeah, I want to try Mario Kart uh, Wii U, whatever it's called. But um... It's just Mario Kart. Double Dash is still better. I never even played that one. Yeah, I've never played Double Dash, and I've never seen a Wii U in the wild outside of like a Target store in your house. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah, it is interesting technically. I think if both of you got Nintendo Land and played through all the things, you would have gaming experiences that you had never had before. But they're all what's Nintendo Land? It's the thing that like has a bunch of mini games that show different mechanics with the controllers. Mm. It's it, it's a good demo of like here's all the things you can do with this crazy, stupid tablet gamepad thing that we gave you and you can do lots of interesting <laughs> things things that you have not done in ios or on a mag or like they are interesting and some of them have do have sustainable value like i said my my uh, son's friends come over they still play the metroid blast minigame which i think does not have that much depth in it but they love it they love the you know the, the asymmetrical play where one person gets to be the ship and the other people are get to be the people and they can you know the, the ship sees a different perspective and they're all on a you know it's it's not these are all slight games you know they're all mini games but it's a good demonstration of all the different things you can do with it uh, but if you're not interested in an academic sense of like oh these are new gaming experiences like you know kind of like a vr helmet like wouldn't you want to try that wouldn't you want to try the oculus rift just just to see what it's like yeah you'd get that out of the wii u too but that's not something like okay well now that i've seen what's possible do i want to keep and you guys just aren't gamers but you're like i just have to once tiff goes through my sort of back catalog of uh, must play games that she can already play maybe i'll recommend a wii u game and uh then you'll have to buy one because she'll need to play something on it but right now <laughs> i mean mario kart looks great it's extremely well done game i have some complaints about it i think the driving in double dash was still better uh but if you, you know if you play mario kart you play mario kart it's mario kart Last one I played was 64. Is it Has it gotten much different since then, or is it basically the same game? Wii was pretty good. I mean, it was basically the same, though. The driving has gotten, feels very different than it did in, in the N64 version, and the graphics are just, like, obviously phenomenally better because that was a million years ago. If you saw it, you'd be impressed, but in the end, you're driving around on carts, getting little presents, shooting shells at people, and doing all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, basically the same game. I mean, it's a racing game. What at the bottom? That's how how much can it possibly change? You go around courses, and the person who gets there first wins. How much could Zelda possibly change? Oh, a lot. That's much I, more. I know. I'm messing with you, but still, I mean, it's a pretty similar concept every time, is it not? Zelda is a is a, a more broad concept because, like, it's racing. It's just you know, you go around a circuit, and the person who gets there first wins. In Zelda, you're playing through a narrative more or less and the narratives like they all have a similar structure just you know a bad guy a good guy battle against evil but there's different characters involved different events take place and in each zelda they try to come up with some new gameplay mechanic that you know uses the controller whether it's swinging the little Wiimote around to use your sword or uh riding on a horse or traveling by boat or you know 
and different different uh, combat systems. And so in the overall, yeah, you're playing through some story, some fight against evil, in the end you win. Uh, but in that range, there's much more that you can do. Yeah, it makes sense. Playing win- playing Wind Waker compare- compared to playing Twilight Princess, even though you could graph them all out and so they all have the same thing, they all have dungeons, you get a weapon, you use the weapon to, to, to defeat the boss at the end of the dungeon, you get more power. Like, they all do exactly the same things, but the experience of playing those two games feels very different. They look entirely different, they feel different. Uh, whereas Mario Kart, it's like, in every game, you go around a course, the Mario always more or less looks the same. It's not like in one, you know, they can add motorcycles and other type of things, but it's like wheeled vehicles, you know, they can make it look like Wipeout, it would still be Mario Kart, like you're still, it's still a racing game. So there's much more freedom. Uh, And then this upcoming Zelda game supposedly is going to finally throw away a lot of the conventions that they've been leaning on since Ocarina of Time to actually change the gameplay so that if you did graph it out on a whiteboard, it would look different, like that it's not a linear progression of dungeons and it's not a dungeon weapon. You can go to anything anytime you want, which is more like the old version of uh, Zelda where you can... uh, if you discover it, you can go do it, even if you're not ready for it, and then you just get killed. Anyway, we're not, we're not entirely sure uh, but they, uh, what the new Zelda is going to be like, but they have said they're going to break some conventions. So, Roughly when is that out? I don't know, like 2015, 2016, something like that. They could just make it require like a $60 add-on controller to help their financial problems a little bit. Yeah, that, I mean, that's talk about, uh, you know, well, what if you just sell to a small number of people who are willing to play money? Uh, I wonder about like, how much money could Nintendo make if they just... Oh, yeah. Just sell the new Zelda game for $300. Yeah. I mean, I would buy it. <laughs> so that's one <laughs> sale, right? Uh, there are a lot of rabid Zelda fans, but you know, I think that the... Uh, whatever the economic term is for the uh, the market for Zelda games is not... It's either not that elastic or not that inelastic, but I never took an economics course, so I don't know which one of those things is the correct term. 